You are Thanos. <laughs> Three, two, one. Well, welcome, Morgan, to this thing that we're doing. It's great to have you on the show today. I love getting to do things. Who are you and what do you do? When we originally met, I was on the team and one of the managing partners of Bookkeeping for Painters. The bookkeeping was an entry into this painting contracting space. Yes. How did you get to that first step? Which yeah. Is yeah. The bookkeeping itself was a very convenient means to an end, I would say. Grew up in a contracting family. My dad is a welder, pipe fitter. All of the men in my family are contractors of different types. So I went to business school and studied entrepreneurial management, but I initially started off working in the nonprofit space. So I worked with a few different nonprofits in and around my graduation from college years, including a couple of political nonprofits. And my favorite was a wildlife center. Anywhere in the Houston area where people would find wildlife that was distressed or injured, they would bring it in and we were an intake center that would do triage. I was actually specializing in working with raptors. So like owls and different types of hawks and things like that. But we would take pretty much any kind of wildlife wildlife, anything up to like coyote size we could take. But I liked that because I wore a ton of hats. So they were very nonprofits are very, very entrepreneurial, a lot of them. Um, especially small ones. So I did a lot of things from curating educational programs and summer camps and doing volunteer training programs to managing financials and doing bookkeeping. So that was one of the things that I did for the, I did a lot of biz dev for that wildlife center. Took a few years off when I had my kids. And when I was ready to come back to work, I decided that I would really like doing business advisory and biz dev functions. Bookkeeping was a really easy way to break back into that, especially as like a part-time mom. I knew that people who are good at bookkeeping don't speak the same language as business owners. It's really easy to be the translator in that space. So I founded, started doing bookkeeping services and I was like subcontracting at the bookkeeping and just doing advisory. And then I joined the team at Bookkeeping for Painters and really quickly just merged and became a partner. And then we scaled that business for a number of years until I exited to just do consulting and coaching. When somebody asks you, who are you and what do you do? How do you respond to that? The easiest answer is that I'm a business coach and uh, that we we own an association for painting contractors. I have a consulting practice, although I haven't really been doing consulting since I took over the Pro Painter Network. And how did that come to happen? You did not found that. You now find yourself running it. How did this happen? So how it came about is I just, I'm really well networked in the painting industry. I really love people and relationships. And actually Nick called me up to invite me to speak at an event series that he hosted sounded like he was in a place where he was probably going to be winding down the pro painter network because he just didn't have the bandwidth to give it the attention that it needed so maybe we can negotiate an acquisition he was like that sounds great and it worked out really really well you've also started to get this notoriety around ai what is AI and why are you that? I'm really obsessed with leverage and what, where can we take one amount of effort and get 10 times the amount of impact from that? So the AI conversation fell right in line with that. So is this in the contracting space that you're specifically starting to advise or consult and help get AI? Because I feel like, I feel like most paying contractors have not yet adopted spreadsheets. Now we're trying to get them to adopt the next iteration of kind of the computing revolution. What are you seeing there? What What's working? What doesn't work? Is the industry really that far behind when it comes to adoption of the most basic things that are in the rest of the business economy? Most of the businesses that are doing well and that are high performing are adopting things. So my big focus has been to stay as plugged in as I can into the areas of rapid development. It's moving so fast that it's like almost impossible to keep up with, but to try to stay plugged into what's practical 
practical for us to roll out and work on and implement in our businesses. So I do spend a lot of time coaching and teaching around how to use those tools in different parts of your businesses, trying my best to demo and test tools that people can pull into their businesses and work with. It's a rapidly evolving conversation, but one that I'm super interested in. It's a unique combination of factors that you find yourself in of this desire to explore the latest iteration of leverage, but then you're also tied into this coaching element where you're helping people actually not just the learning, but the application. And you're also tied into this network of a painting community. Yeah, the painting community is just, it's the most specific application. If people want to work with you on a consulting or coaching basis, what's the best way to get a hold of you there? I'm actually very limited on any kind of one-on-one or consulting time that I do anymore. Anyone who's a Pro Painter Network member gets priority access to that. What is what is this investing thing that I hear you talking about? Honestly, that's our third business between the two of us, what we do professionally. Our businesses cash flow well, and then we transfer that over into real estate, really powerful cash flowing asset. I'm sure for some of the same reasons that you guys do it on the Olive side. But next on our docket is definitely to acquire another business, most likely this time an actual home service business, which will be the first time I'll own a home service business rather than just advise home service businesses. So we've got a few different options in the pipeline for that right now. When you say real estate is getting harder and harder to come by, back in my day, you could work a summer job, pay off your college. It was easy. Now kids are complaining about it. Tuition's too high. Oh, interest rates aren't the same. Are these things real? I think so. I mean, when you look at the buying power of the Gen Xers, even starting with the Gen Xers through the millennials and now the Gen Zers, not nearly the same amount of buying power when it comes to education, when it comes to homes. It's really interesting to see the intergenerational conversations about how easy it was to have like a middle management job and buy a nice four bedroom house for your family in the 80s. As far as what I meant about property being harder to come by, it's purchasing power, but it's also that it's just gotten so corporatized. A lot of states have become very anti-landlord, which, you know, kind of inversely actually makes it so that you can really only afford to operate as a landlord if you are a massive corporation that's like a soulless corporation and doesn't really care. Definitely some unintended consequences that, that fall out with that kind of legislation. So. so is Black Rot a net benefit or net negative to society? I, I don't think it's been beneficial, but I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that. You want to unpack that, what, what BlackRock is for the audience and kind of talk through that? BlackRock <laughs> has a lot of dollars that it manages. In its truest, most well-intentioned form, there's a lot of value as well as human potential and energy. The society will benefit the most if we can put those to productive uses. What do we as a society through our purchasing power value will dictate mm-hmm. where we want to put those resources and the people who are really good at aligning resources to outcomes benefit from that. BlackRock is one of the largest ones. So they're always trying to figure how do I get a return on this cash, which is a lot harder with an yeah. uppercase T and now lowercase T, like a trillion dollars and not thousands of dollars. They do service the purpose of allocating capital, which is just how do we put human productivity and the existing value on the earth to good use. And the other part of the conversation that I think of that's super relevant is there's the theoretical concept of how a capitalist society would run and operate and how the economists like to think of a rational decision making. But we know that we don't live in perfect capitalism that rewards based on what's creating the most good, what's creating the most benefit in the market. There's a lot of, I think, very powerful argument that could be made in that so many of these entities have accumulated as much capital as they have, not because they've been operating in a nice capitalist society, but because they've been able to successfully create legislative barriers to entry. They've been able to create things that give them an unfair advantage that's very anti-capitalist. And that's something that we struggle with. So that's kind of like my reference to the anti-landlord laws. There's a lot of that that's been put in place that's like synthetically restricting how the market would normally free 
freely move. And that's created this ability for people to accumulate capital that's not because they're creating the greatest good, but it's because they've been able to bear out the risk when other people can't, or they've just been artificially benefited because of different legislative bodies that politicians that have been incentivized to give them what they want at the cost of other people in the market. So that's the, the way Kids that call that building a moat. And I'm a big fan of building moats once I have the castle. When I don't own the castle, I don't want there to be a moat. It's a challenge that we're all selfish, I think. And what's the difference between gambling and investing? I would say the difference would be in a gambling scenario, the odds are typically stacked against you. I'm not sure there's as distinct of a difference between the two if you're thinking about in both regards, it's taking a measured risk, measured risk, measured reward. So they're the same in that regard. It's just a matter of statistics in any case. And every investment has a different statistical analysis, just like every gambling game has a different statistical analysis. And it's just who's weighted for it to be in favor of the more prospective or the more aggressive you are as an investor. It's very gambling intensive. I think a lot of what people are doing on apps like Robinhood is gambling. I don't really think that there's a lot of well-reasoned thinking and rationale behind that. And I think a lot of apps like that, that people are kind of getting into feeling like they're investing or like the crypto market was a really big one or so so prospective is not the word that I'm looking for. What is the word that I'm looking for? It's like um, momentum investing versus value-based investing. And yeah, actually, I got into an argument with somebody. It wasn't an argument. We we're sitting around a campfire and he said, you know, I've been investing in crypto. And I said, oh, you mean gambling? He actually ended up getting me. He ended up cornering me because I think the difference is the heart of the person's intention. And I cannot mm-hmm. read the intentions of somebody else's heart. Mm-hmm. But there are these things you're speaking to of people who do not say I'm gambling with, an, with a real estate portfolio. Speculative. That's the word I was looking for. How speculative is the yeah. market? Crypto, highly, highly speculative. So that's where I do think of it as gambling. But continue yeah. your thought. I was going to say people typically do not say that they are gambling in the real estate market. So I'm mm-hmm. investing in real estate market. Right. The same way you'd say, I'm not going to, what's that that big wheel that people spin at, at the- uh, Roulette? Uh, the roulette, the big, yeah. the black and red. Like, I'm not going yeah. to invest in roulette. So it's kind of like, what's the expectation? Is it short-term? Is it long-term? Uh-huh. Is it the spirit of, I'm looking for a quick win dopamine hit? Or am I looking to embark in a patience endeavor? Does that mean that you cannot invest short-term? Or is there <laughs> such a thing as a short-term investments? It almost got to me. I ended up apologizing to them days later. So I was like, you know what? I actually cannot read the intentions of your heart. And I should mm-hmm. not have said that. I don't know if you're gambling or investing. I think you're gambling personally. I, I think there's a lot of scenarios though, where I'm not sure. I'm not sure I would agree that you could say that gambling is purely an intention of the heart. Cause I do think there are a lot of scenarios where people get themselves into not good situations, thinking that, Ooh, thinking that they have a greater yeah. understanding of what they're yeah. doing than they really do. And yeah. is, is it gambling or is it an investment to pay $250,000 to take a speculative submersible down to visit the Titanic. Well, it's an investment. <laughs> In, your, in, in experiences, right? Yeah. What's up with Olive? Like, I see some really cool, I see some really cool note, news notices yeah. coming out. How is everything going on that front? Future of Olive is bright. At the point of this recording, we have 14 partners and we're pretty excited about that. It starts yeah. to affirm the momentum that we're starting to get in just the idea that we're doing. So that's pretty exciting. That is, it's really cool to see the progress and growth on that front because I think that it's a powerful argument in favor of the combination of a professionalized investor who has come up in the skilled trade space, which I think is the most favorable environment for investment in the skilled trade space. There's a lot of like outside capital coming in. I both don't like it as much. And I also think that there's a lot of potential missing components from that context and that understanding of the space. So yeah. it's validating to see the success of all of I really think there's no end to what we can do and what we can achieve. Yeah, it takes a, a unique combination.
All right, now we get to the philosophical hour. This is something that will kind of frame the upcoming discussions here. So this is a concept in every single movie I've ever watched. Batman would be one of them. It's this difference between Zweck rational and Wirt, ra Wirt rational. And so one you could kind of say is instrumentally rational, the other value rational. Another way of describing it is the ends justify the means or the means justify the ends, <laughs> for lack of a better word. What are your two thoughts on these rationalizations? Yeah, as far as like the ends justify the means or that we should be value driven right. in terms of like, even if the if even if even the ends don't end up the way that we want, we have to go with what was the ethically or morally motivated. Yeah, it's like, like Batman never kills, right? And that's the whole- But if he were to kill, then- He would maybe, save lives. He would yeah. save lives if he were to kill. <laughs> so this is tough, but I don't know. It is really tough. Philosophically, I tend to fall into the instrumentally rational camp, which is that the ends justify the means. And what's tricky about that and the- Oh my gosh, that's so bad though. Like the superheroes never bad. do that. It is bad because it honestly, it places oh. a moral impetus on people to potentially potentially do bad things if it serves like the utilitarian good. But the more that I've always dived into the rationalizations, I have a really hard time moving away from a utilitarian justification for or utilitarian pursuit of good. And if you have a utilitarian yeah. pursuit of good, you have, I think you, I think you are obligated to fall into the instrumentally rational justification for behavior. Well, now that we've framed that, I think we'll have a good Good question here. Pull this up. Are you familiar with the trolley problem? am familiar with the trolley problem. What is your understanding of this issue we have here? In the trolley problem, on its default course, the trolley is going to hit five people. Yeah. And that you as a bystander can either not affect the situation at all, and five people are going to die, or you can impact the situation and instead change the course of the trolley so that only one person dies. So you are averting the death of five, and instead only one person dies, but you are now culpable for the Death the of person one. would not have died. They wouldn't have and died. I'm a big fan of the reframe of this. So most of the time with the trolley problem, people are like, you have to, you have to change the trolley and kill the one and save the five. But then if you turn it around to like the surgeon scenario, have you heard that one? No. You haven't heard the surgeon, the Not organ donation scenario? No, I don't think so. So usually with the trolley problem, people will say, pull the lever so that the one is sacrificed to save the five. And so yeah. they say, okay, so now you're a surgeon with life-saving ability. You have five terminally ill patients and you have one patient who's healthy, who you can harvest the organs of to save the five right. terminally ill patients, which right. is effectively still you taking an action to take one life and save five. Right. Is Just that more morally and more gruesome. Yeah. Do you think that solves it? What are your... I think it's a really interesting scenario because in that scenario, I, like most people, I'm like, no, I don't think that I could murder one person, take their organs out and go yeah. save five people. The perception of active involvement, that yeah. is what seems to influence people, right? One yeah. way or the other. Right. Uh, these are all, all challenges. Yeah. Well, you've already thought through this one pretty well. No, it's a great one though. So it's a really go... good one. one of my favorite authors is the author Jonathan Haidt because he's a moral psychologist. So he explores all of these scenarios. Why do people feel ick about one yeah. scenario, but not yeah. another scenario? And so then you think about like the trolley problem. If it's five adults or one child, does that change your perspective? Right. Would you sacrifice the child to save the adults or like, yeah. Yeah. or is it worth it to kill the adults to save the child? Like people just interesting to see how people place moral weight they're like forced to develop their foundations to answer your question they're finding out what the, their foundations are through those questions right just to be clear in the first scenario you would pull the lever and kill someone that would not be killed otherwise okay 
that what, that's what we, just confirming? Yes. Okay. Yes. In the first scenario, he dies. One dies instead of the five. So this is a man. It's an immortal Wolverine-like powers. Or you could say this if, if that's too crazy. You could say like, well, there's a little bridge over him, but it just like hurts him really bad with the shock of the trolley or something. He can't die, but feels the pain every time. So the trolley crushes his legs and head. So it's just this continual agony. Suffering. And At that point, you're now no longer trading one death for five. You're now trading a thousand years of torture yeah. uh, of an individual. It's a nuclear power, as you can tell, that can last a thousand Last for 10,000 years. So 10,000 years of one person suffering in exchange for five lives. So this is where I come back to like the utilitarian roots. And so for anyone who's listening who's not kind of familiar with philosophy, the utilitarian perspective is what creates the most happiness or what creates the least amount of suffering. In this case, I would say killing the five creates less suffering because even though it's the deaths of five people and the suffering of whoever was impacted by their deaths, that's more finite than 10,000 years of individual suffering. And you could even quantify that probably. You could even say how many people are impacted directly by the deaths of five people, how many lifetimes of potential emotional suffering are there there compared to the 10,000 years of... You are Thanos. <laughs> what you're saying. So that's, that's, that's one of the things I love about those movies, which is just any movie that creates a really good villain. And I think Thanos is one of the best villains because it is really hard to argue with his utilitarian approach. But he's obviously the bad guy because his face is all like gray and wrinkled. He's ugly, right? <laughs> that makes only- it easier for me to tell who, I should, who I'm supposed to root for. <laughs> yeah. There is a $100 bill on the tracks. If you pull the lever, five people still die. But the bill doesn't get destroyed and you can now go and collect it. Would okay. pulling the lever get you involved in the situation? And does it make you in some way responsible for his deaths? Or do you just justify of these people are going to die anyways? It's just, death, death versus death. But in one scenario, I get 100 bucks. But you're now actively involved in their death. I think it's more morally neutral because I wouldn't say that you're actively, you're not causing their deaths and you have no ability to prevent They were going to die anyways. It's more and morally neutral. I just but I personally go a little bit of the course blood of history, spattered hundred dollar bill. Probably not, but I do think it's a morally neutral scenario. Yeah, you could see this play out. Well, I know. I think you had commented on the city of Omelus. Omelus. Yes. However it's pronounced. That child is going to suffer anyways. Why would I not be in the city still and grab the hundred dollars in the city of happiness? Because the because the city is going to make the child suffer whether you're there or yeah. not. These, these guys are going to die anyways. This is just a little little. Boop. This is just a little like you're you just you just clear it out. them to have high levels of cortisol and stress and worry for another two seconds. There is a cost to it. It's not a life or death. There's, there is a there is an additional moral cost. There's a cost to you as the individual potentially if you have empathy. Some people don't, but if you have empathy, you might feel the disdain of collecting blood money, which I would. So in this scenario, I'm like I'm not concerned about a hundred dollars. If it was a million dollars, does this change the scenario for people? Probably. Right. <laughs> I could probably live with my moral disdain for a million dollars for a scenario I couldn't prevent. Probably. Only one. This is like the prisoner's dilemma a little bit, right? Only mm-hmm. one can survive. The trolley is still going to kill one of you. You don't know it's random, but if you pull it, it definitely goes on his side. If he pulls it, definitely goes to your side. Whoever pulls it first, but you're still going to be killing the other person. Yeah. The prisoner's dilemma ones are really good. Can you be tried for murder is a really easy question. I would say no in this scenario, but that is a really good question. Cause then I think about the other extrapolations, like to save yourself, you like the organ harvesting one, (laughs) like you kill someone to harvest, harvest their organs. That's, that's active murder. In this case, it's standing your ground, (laughs) which we know is, 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 
Alexis, the only way I survive is by killing that other person. Am I living Zweck or we're rational? Worst case scenario, it's a manslaughter charge because it's the... Well, worst case scenario, you have to live with killing somebody. Too. Yeah, you kill someone. But you're asking about, can you be tried for murder in this scenario? So yeah. manslaughter. I think you could be tried for manslaughter. Yeah, living with the thought that you killed someone to save yourself is you you did. You did kill your kill someone to save yourself. So yeah, can you live with that? <laughs> hmm. Okay. And then that's one that I'm not sure I could definitively answer one way or the other. They are all challenging questions. They are. This one, you can stop the trolley at any time, but doing so would disrupt the trolley service, causing the company to lose profits. (laughs) This is a good one. (laughs) Late stage capitalism Uh meme. Yeah, I think we, I think we, we all agree. We stop the trolley. Are we saying that life is more important than profit? I, I do think life is more important than profit. That's probably a good answer. Yeah, probably. We'll fall in favor in favor of the audience. On what this. is the purpose of human life, if not for profit? I think profit is to serve human life, not the other way around, for mm-hmm. sure. I don't think the accumulation of resources for resources sake makes any sense. I do think life is about the pursuit of improved quality of life, not just for yourself, but hopefully for, again, that utilitarian perspective, creating the most good you can, which is where I think a lot of us start to, a lot of entrepreneurialism or the entrepreneur as hero is justified as creating creating more well-being for everyone, right? Because you're entering into the market, providing solutions, providing jobs that are hopefully preferable in order to compete to get people to work for you. You're competing on the ability to create good and to create benefit in a capitalist scenario. And yeah. it gets warped, I think, in other, in other places. As you were saying, capitalism works well when you're competing away excess profits. Where capitalism doesn't work is when there's excess profits that can't be competed away. We're talking about the Rephrase boat scenario. That? There's a, an excess of profits and Consumers have the potential to have lower prices. It works well when people come in and compete away those excess profits, right? Uh, as opposed to building a moat through legislation, and then prevent people who don't who haven't already established their large castle yeah. from building one. Well, here's a good philosophical question for you too. What are your thoughts about intellectual property? Huh. Is intellectual property justifiable or even allowable in a in a purely capitalist system? Is is it, is IP capitalist? Yeah, I, I believe in intellectual property. I think it gives the incentive to make big bets and mm-hmm. take big swings. Building something up that can easily be transferred to someone else producing that good, it only pays off if you can protect that. I don't Does think. it though? I would challenge that assumption that it only pays out if you can protect it. If you can well, be there's protected. a large resource cost to producing the, because, the origin of, of the, the good. Let's well, say there's like a, a design and it requires $1,000 to produce that design. And now that it's out there, anyone can compete and run with it. And you're now competing on your ability to execute. Mm-hmm. But the innovators have an incentive to have that sunk cost when they may not be the best at executing. In a hypothetical scenario, you could say that those are exclusionary traits. Yeah. Right? You have the innovators and you have the executors, but go ahead. Well, but with the, but whenever we introduce like intellectual property protections into a scenario, we're now creating a scenario where someone who could execute better on a yeah. solution that creates good or who could iterate on it and create more good yep. is now being prevented from doing so to protect the profit motive of the original innovator, to right? Protect, to protect but the incentive of creating the origin. The profit incentive, right? But now we're arguing that the profit incentive is the main incentive for innovation right. and creating good. So then there's a philosophical argument there, right. which is... Is are innovators profit motivated right. in like intrinsically or more so than other things? And does the profit motivation of a single innovator for in yeah. the case of the beginning invention outweigh the potential good created by iterative innovation over time if you were to open up that market? If it's an N of one scenario, you know, then for sure screw over the innovator and take, take the, everything <laughs> they created, right? But if you're going to play this game over and over and over again, you want to create a society where the innovators feel protected. And it may not be protected to feel incentivized because I get where you're going with that. It's the highest use of human potential 
potentials where you're driven more out of your passions than my desire to survive or accumulate. To do some things truly great, you have to utilize resources beyond yourself. You so you're and, talking about like leveraging at in mass or leveraging yeah, at let's say, let's say let's say to create origin one, the origin product requires $10 billion of capital. It seems like you have to then go to people who are not creators, people mm -hmm. who have been accumulating capital. What are they incentivized by? A return. And they're not going to invest in your origin project unless they know that there's an ecosystem that protects that. There's time horizons on that IP. Yeah. Uh, at some point you do want to be competed away because now you have one company that's a good innovator, but they're terrible at execution. So everybody suffers because of that but they're still like kind of better off than if they had never take on, taken on that origin project. Yeah. I think that there's a deeper argument as far as what what's the actual pragmatic impact of assuming that there's a profit incentive in innovation or that we need high levels of capital to fuel innovation because there's a profit center. Now, I think that the most powerful argument is like to foster creativity or to foster even like artistry or science that there needs to be some level of freeing individuals enough from survival needs that now they're able to create that they're you're, you're freeing up like that bandwidth. So then my question for you would be given the given these to society given two societies yep. if you have one that's capital driven the accumulation yeah. of capital or you have one that's this kind of universal basic income-esque utopia where everyone yeah. has a maybe middling quality of life needs are met and they're all the hygiene factors right that motivate yeah. people are, are satisfied and innovation is maybe the only way that that quality of life would be elevated versus in the capital driven society you innovate to accumulate capital that's how you would maybe increase your quality of life is either through innovation or through the accumulation of capital which society is there more innovation? I think the one where it's passion driven or purpose driven. You think so? I find that in my own life. You probably find that in your life too, mm -hmm. right? You'd prefer to go drive and innovate in the things that give you a passion, mm -hmm. even if there's not as much of an economic output to it. I've um, also seen and firsthand witnessed a lot of scenarios mm -hmm. where you create a perverse incentive in the capital driven scenario, where now we're trying to sell ideas or we're trying to sell the concepts around innovation that may not actually be effective. This is, this is what I keep telling my partners about this podcast, I tell them there is an art and a craft to developing something that's set for the marketplace. There's also a skill to just creating art. And that's what this is. It's just yeah. art. Don't it's ask art. me what I'm doing in here. It's art <laughs> expressing my true self. There is no benefit. It it's may art. not be what the market is wanting to wanting to digest. Based off the number of views, it's not what the market wants. Yeah. But based off about how much fun I'm having, it's a good expression of art. We don't have a few minutes left. What happens after we die? Um, there's energetic continuance. Because we, if we go with the pure physics description that, you know, energy is neither created nor destroyed. So there is some element of you continue on as part of the ecology of the planet. I don't ascribe to a life after death scenario. Maybe we should have started with that because that does impact a lot of the... <laughs> the trolley. Yeah, the trolley. it impacts a lot of like the moral reasoning and conditioning, yeah. like how that influences. We have physical bodies. And then would you say that's separate from our consciousness? Or do you think those are, are interwoven together? Or are those two separate things? I could, I would consider them interwoven together. And I have a personal interest in neuroscience. And I'm, I've always been really fascinated by the more we learn about the brain and what that tells us about how, how driven we are by our physiology, how much of our personality is made up by our physiology. I do tend to think the more that I learned about neuroscience, the more that I, I can came to the conclusion that we as humans are very much products of our environment. We're very 
much actually more automata there. So there's the whole free will conversation. Mm -hmm. I don't think that we're practicing free will in the way that people like to envision free will. I think that you're a result of genetic and environmental programming. Do you think we have the ability to edit our environment? To edit our environment? Yes. The fundamental component of intelligence is the ability to to edit yeah. our environment. Yeah. yeah. Cause I think I agree with you in that a lot of our day to day actions are driven by, it's just the momentum, but then we do have these moments that we have the ability to architect the system around us to cause ourselves to automatically go in the direction that we want to go. Yeah. And I think that's what we're forced into. I think you have to be able to think in that to that extent. And I think that's the kind of penultimate interesting conversation around AI, which is when you get into an artificial general intelligence, everything that yeah. you're creating is a prediction machine that's trying to predict the universe and our environment and us. If that theory of reality is accurate, that it can be really highly predicted, then that's the ultimate tool for being the architect of our own environment and essentially- And we have to decide what we want. That's part of the beauty of humanity as it's today is that we're so inefficient on a personal level or on a societal level or on a global level, Humanity is very fractured in what we believe our purpose is and what we're all driving towards. So if you mm -hmm. tell the AI to optimize the purpose of humanity, that's a really difficult question. Well, that's all we have for today. And I'll put some links at the bottom. As we always say here, make sure that it's always one gallon at a time. We got, we didn't get to the ship, the ship of Theseus. Ooh, that's a good one. Okay. I've got 10 more minutes. Okay. We have 10 minutes or no? Yeah, I've got time. Okay. We're going to, we got a couple of bonus thoughts here. Have you heard about the ship of Theseus? I have, you? but you should re, you should okay. reiterate the ship There's of Theseus. There's the ship. It's in a big battle, wins the war. Everybody loves it. It's retired. Once a year, they take it out. It goes on this big journey as a celebration. And over the years, you have to replace different parts of the ship. So first you replace the steering wheel, then you replace the rudder, then you replace the board on the floor, then a board on the side of the ship. And after years and years and years, you end up having a ship with no original parts. All the boards have been replaced. Every single element has been replaced due to the wear and tear. And the question is, is that the same ship that was in those battles? And if not, at what point did that did that change happen? It's not the same ship. It does hold relevant value as the original ship because it holds that place in human consciousness. And the way that we assign value, we know is often not literal and rational. And I think that applies in this case to the physical versus metaphysical existence yeah. of yeah. ship in the space that it, that it is attached attaining at any point, right? But I would say it's not the same. If you phrase it that way, it's not the same ship. And when does it not when does it become not the same ship? It becomes not the same ship the second you change any piece of it, right? It becomes different. It becomes an iterative version of the ship of Theseus. Yeah. Is that too much of a non-answer? It's a good answer. Because it's kind okay. of like the cool. cellular regeneration is maybe right. the other version of that if we're yeah. Yeah. Because we're always changing and are we the same person? Well, we're not the same person, but you are the same person. Paired with that, a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it fall. Question is, does it make a sound? Yes. What if that tree is on another planet? If there's if there's vibration created, then that I would there, where there is motion and vibration, I would I would constitute that sound is created. Yeah. What if that tree is on a different universe? That universe goes through expansion. It goes to heat death or whatever happens when the universes end. I'll, uh, I'll singularity just point. That, I'll just say the entire and nobody universe observed. Sound. Nobody <laughs> observed that tree falling, nor did they hear it. It is still sound. Yeah, I'm gonna go with the literal definition of sound. As sound is just another, it's another vibrant kind of vibration. Yeah. So I'm not sure on this one. I think I might think differently than you on this. Tell me at the moment until you convince me the other way. I think that. 
anything happening, existing, or even having meaning is somewhat dependent on the observation of consciousness. I'm just thinking of all these parallel worlds where there's no consciousness. It expands, it collapses. Did that universe ever exist? Is the right. question. If it's if not a memory, consciousness there to observe it. Yeah, if no one's there to observe it. I would say if the tree falls and the vibration thing and, and it this butterfly effect of which is why I put it on a different planet in the second scenario, right. there's something very special about consciousness observing something. Yeah. To the point where like I'm almost willing to say that it's what gives things meaning and existence. I do think I do agree with you that um, when we talk about, you know, con literally context is everything, there has to be an observer for there to be information. Otherwise, it's just data, you know, that yeah. that con that consciousness is the, the, the context that a consciousness right. adds is what creates information or what what creates relevancy of any kind. And I do think that from my very limited understanding and how much I have been exposed to very high level theoretical physics, there's um, some very powerful arguments about the state of being and matter that do maybe seem to point to the idea that it is pretty consciousness dependent or that which is why there's kind of that question of like, do we live in a simulation? Because that's essentially what we're asking, right? Is mm -hmm. does our is our reality dependent? on our conscious observation of it. Is the universe given a purpose through consciousness? It kind of goes back to that question or that hypothetical scenario of if you exist in a body that loses all senses, there's no mm -hmm. sight, sound, hearing, there's no more physical sensation, does your consciousness continue to exist? Or is it tied into your body? Intelligence is as what we see and define as intelligence is a manifestation is like a higher order manifestation of that spirit and humans obviously being one of the top tiers. I think, I think that's, that. intelligent. that's how I think of it. Yeah, I can, I can see that perspective. Last question. What do we do about global warming? I think we need to embrace nuclear power and I get really tired of the lip service that's paid to things that people like to think are environmentally friendly, but really aren't like solar power and wind power. It's all nuclear all the way. This is the philosophical conversation that we missed, Jason, which is uh, democracy versus versus rule by a higher intelligence <laughs> or mm. can the collective make good decisions for themselves or not? <laughs> and I yeah. tend to think, no, they, they don't. There's a lot in there. I was going to say, are nuclear explosions really that bad? I don't think so. 